My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Marcus Samuelson needs no introduction to TV cooking show lovers. But even if you're not a fan of cooking shows, you should know Marcus Samuelson because his story is unlike any other and his mission is greater than any dish he ever prepared. He's a top chef master and James Beard award winner. He's cooked for the Obamas at the White House and in Harlem at his Red Rooster restaurant. To many, he's become the face of a global American cuisine championing diversity of foods in the kitchen and diversity in society at large. Samuelson's extraordinary origin story begins in Ethiopia, moves to his adoptive home and new family in Sweden, and then to Switzerland before moving on to New York and its multi-ethnic stew of delicious delights. If there's anyone who can pick up the mantle of our modern-day Anthony Bourdain, it's Marcus Samuelson who can not only cook his ass off, but also has a larger purpose than feeding us. He wants to educate us as well, to validate difference and acknowledge excellence, wherever it may be on the social hierarchy. So welcome, Marcus Samuelson. Thank you for having me, David. Very happy to be here. So since I made the comparison, let's start with Anthony Bourdain. You appeared on Parts Unknown and went to Ethiopia, with Anthony to the country where you were born. What was that like? And why do you think Bourdain has become such a cultural icon? Well, I think Tony showed vulnerability and he wasn't afraid of showing vulnerability. Everyone can see themselves in Tony and depending on what aspect, right? And you can also aspire to Tony, right? Like he ate with everybody. He truly break bread with everybody. And I think no matter where you are on the political aisle, whatever, I think people aspire to do that. His curiosity came all the way into people's living room. He's lived a very interesting life, and he didn't hide away from that. I'll tell you, at the funeral, and when the din- we had the dinner afterwards, I said to my wife, he's sitting upstairs laughing at all of us now. It's exactly from Tony's life. The, the dinner was in Chinatown. And it was in one of these places where you have to go up the fifth floor. And the people at that dinner were from all walks of life. You had the CNN crew, Tony. You had the chef's life of Tony, right? From dishwasher to famous chefs. You had the drug years of Tony, right? And then you had the family feud, Tony. It was beautiful. It was sad, but it was beautiful. And he didn't try to hide any of this stuff. It was an incredible evening, actually. I don't want to compare you two totally, but I mean, there's certainly something there to compare, right? In your book, which I have here, by the way, Yes, Chef, Yeah, which I'm loving. I'm halfway through it. It is so well written, by the way. So congratulations there as well. I know it's been out a few years. I'm just catching up. But you also are pretty open about, you know, all your life there as well, right? I think that 
if you're going to go through the task of, of opening yourself up, which a memoir is, right? A memoir is not a victory lap for me. It's, it's really the values of life, what makes life interesting. And I think that it was very therapeutic for me to write this book at that time. I got signed very, very early, and it took me six years to write the book because I wasn't ready at the time I was signed to do the book. And it took three tries. I stopped, started three times because I had to be ready to share a lot of things and, and figure out a narrative. And Veronica, my co-author, we've been friends for a very long time, and she really pulled me through it. And, and I think it's the same this year. I'm coming out with a book called The Rise. It's really about sharing black excellence. What does black food taste like? Obviously, black food is uh, not monolithic. So in Yes Chef, I felt it was one of the first times where I could lay out this path, that it's not a simple path to be a chef and particularly to be a black chef. You didn't even particularly think of yourself as a black chef when you were starting out. You know, that wasn't your ambition. Your ambition was to be one of the great cooks of Europe, uh, like a French cuisine, five-star. And then something happened. What happened? <laughs> Well, I think life happens, right? And that curveball of life is what makes it all interesting. First of all, when you grow up in an era where there's no one looking like you, not on the block, but in the world doing it, right? I knew black people were doing it, but we weren't connected. It wasn't internet. There was no books that I can go and find. I had to go out to the world and do it. And all we saw was singular men and they were French. I remember loving Mark Pierre White from England because he had long hair and was smoking. At least someone that looked a little bit like, you know, that I was related to, like in the sense that they had long hair and came out of rock and roll more than cooking. And I love that. When you kind of like, you do a craft, but you hide, almost hide your identity and you can't do such an expressive work as being a chef if you have to hide part of your identity, right? So the technical aspect of cooking, I picked up on pretty quickly. But then that's not just like a musician. That's not what makes a great musician. The feeling, the narrative, who are you cooking for? And all of those things, I think, for me, came to life around 9-11. You know, when we changed in New York and when we changed forever, when all of us lost people, I cooked at the towers the weekend before 9-11 and 60 to 80 of that crew that they, they died and it was some people I knew very well and some people I just knew from cooking with them and that was really the beginning to me is like asking the questions you know what am I what am I here for what am I doing and once you start asking those questions you start asking why am I only cooking for the one percent of the one percent and and why is my audience only you know, one certain level of income level. And so you start going down that route. At the same time, I found my biological father. I started to engage more with my daughter. I found myself in really dealing with life for the first time. Before I just dealt as a young professional and working towards excellence. After 9-11, I had to start dealing with life. You can't really go back just to cook after you start asking yourself those questions. I'm jumping around a little bit since, uh, you know, we're here, 9-11. Right now, we're living through 
something else, right? That's also life changing. Obviously, lots of people dying as a result of the COVID virus. Another moment of change going on as well. Do you feel that there's lots shifting currently? Uh, as a business, you had to deal with the repercussions of the city going through the crisis or the world, because I know. You have restaurants not just in Manhattan, but elsewhere as well. You immediately went out and, and closed all your restaurants. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think on a mental level, we're in the middle, still in it. And I think we're all hurting and we're all grieving in a way. So now you and I can talk about 9-11 with a distance. If this interview would have been done in fall of 2001, we couldn't have because we were still in it, Right. So that, I, I, I don't think we're out of COVID. And I think if you look at urban America, it will be for the next 10 to 15 years. I live in Harlem, my restaurant is in Harlem, my office is here. What I see between going those five blocks, going from my house to work every day, it's, it's unbelievable. And it hurts me because there's a lot of hurt on there, on the street, people have lost hope. There's I've never seen as many heroin needles in my life. I've never seen a, a drastic change in three, four months as now. So when I put that in perspective, my restaurant issues are smaller than the New York City or the Harlem issues. You always have to put it in perspective. For me, it's about acknowledging your privilege. I'm a lucky bastard. If I don't like it, I can go back to Sweden, right? I'm also privileged and lucky enough to have health care, right? So I can go to work every day and I feel healthy and my son is healthy, my wife is healthy. So I start with that, acknowledge my privilege. And then what can I do in the community that has been so tremendous to me? And that's when we decided to shut the restaurants and create community kitchens instead. And Red Rooster in New York and my restaurant in Newark and, and also in Miami, on March 15, we shut it and we became a community kitchen and we served 250,000 meals together with World Central Kitchen here in Harlem to first responders and to the neediest. And in Newark, we've been able to do the same and partner with Newark Working Kitchen. And that helped the restaurants in those communities to stay alive. It helped the neediest and also helped the infrastructure of food, David, that is completely interrupted, right? Like you have farmers burning their food because who's buying it and so on. So I think we did probably the most meaningful work during this time. Now we've stopped it and actually opened back up and uh, not in Newark, but in Harlem. Now we have outdoor patio and we're doing all that and we're doing the seating for that. And slowly in October 1, we're going to open back up indoor dining for 25%. So we are slowly coming back and becoming what our first goal was to become a restaurant in Harlem. But we were busy and we were working during this time. And I know we made a difference. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. Do you think that a lot of this will not be able to be recovered? You know, I was listening to the radio the other day and someone was talking about, you know, that we haven't mourned this passing way of life. You know, even if we haven't lost uh, individuals or friends, family, we've lost a certain way of life that you're saying is going to be 15 years. I don't know how long. Some people are a lot more optimistic, but obviously a lot of the small businesses are not going to be able to recover quickly. And, and we're going to have a lot of closed storefronts for a long time. 
I think you, we, we mourn and grief on, on numerous levels, right? You know, the mourning of him being in office, that's a mourn. It's an embarrassment and it's a mourn. And they're actually connected to how we're dealing with this as a nation, right? So that's one. Two, COVID impacts people of color, black and brown people, severely different, very, very different because of its access to healthcare and most black and brown people don't have the option to work from home, right? That's why the numbers hits us so differently. My chefs and cooks that worked in the restaurant, they couldn't do that work from their apartment. So it, so it, it does impact us all very, very different. And then do, how do we come back as a city? You know, I love the dates when you jump on the train and you go to Brooklyn to have dinner and come back or when someone from, downtown coming up to Red Rooster. The whole idea of Red Rooster is to bridge the city and have people coming from downtown, meeting the local. That's what makes New York so unique. So when I look at it from that aspect, the tourist will come back. It will take three, four, I don't know how many years, but he or she will come back. But then you have that very unique relationship that we have as New Yorkers with one another, where are you going to go out to a place that is 20 minutes outside your neighborhood, you might think about it. And, and you never thought about it before. So there is a dent there that I think slowly, surely we could eventually fix. But restaurants are a big part of that, David, because the word restaurant means to restore your community. And if the lights are not on in your local community, wherever you live, that doesn't give you confidence to tell your friends to come down here, wherever that is. So it's very important that we come together as, as small businesses, not just for feeding people, but actually feeding the soul and, and keeping the lights on for so many different reasons. When you first came to Manhattan and you write about it beautifully in your book, you talked about how uh, you're privileged or lucky, but you actually worked really, really hard. Nobody handed you anything and, and made it easy. As a person of color, you also had to deal with that on top of the whole restaurant yeah. dictatorship that, go, that takes place that you described of, of what it takes to work yourself up. But let's just start with New York. You know, let's, let's go back. What was that, like 1990 or thereabouts when you came? Yeah, ni 93, 94. I always say that, like, our friend, Fab Five Freddy, that was my history teacher. I took notes. When I looked at MTV, Yo! MTV Raps, that was my homework. It was my homework in terms of sonically, but also, like, what to wear, how did America look like, right? And I, and I fell in love with New York as a Black kid living in Sweden and Black excellence in America. I was always drawn to the way I studied prints, for example. So it just blew my mind what he, this person was doing in the States. And I read his records backwards and like he played every instrument. Like the, my icons were always in America. <laughs> and so it was clear to me that one day I would live in America and I would live specifically in New York City. And, you know, the, the, the people I admire are very much the people that you and Kim wrote about in paper, right? It's, it's people that, have attitude that changed the city or the culture that we're working on for the better. And it was very opposite from how you raised in Sweden, where you have much more uh, passiveness to it. And if you're great, you're not supposed to talk about it. You know, 
where hip hop is the opposite. If you're great, talk about it. You know what I mean? And, and even if you're not great, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and people like Rakim and Tribe Called Quest and all of that stuff. So I was drawn to all of that, and I got the New York bug. I remember the very first time I came to the states in the in the late '80s was with my soccer club, and you know we got robbed in Times Square, and I thought like that was great. You know what I mean? We ran <laughs> cool, after man. those guys. We ran, it was just like little We ran after those guys, got our bags back, and everybody's like. What happened? I was like, that was exciting. That's what I came to talk for. You know, the kids, the kids. Adrenaline. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you're either drawn to that or you're not drawn to that. And I was drawn to that. Culture has always been what I like, you know. And if it's not creative and it's not culture, it's not me. But the, the city was also full of surprises, though, because you knew about that a little bit, at least, in advance. But then you discovered all this multicultural world that existed with the different foods and that became even bigger, I, I guess, right? Than, than the culture or the hip hop. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that navigation, you know, as a black person, you very often navigate two lives, you know, how to navigate through things, through situations. My two lives was also very often around food and non-food, right? So food for me, discovering Chinatown, was amazing. That was something that was familiar to me today because I, at that point, I've already traveled the world and I've been in Southeast Asia a lot and been to China already. And I was like, there's two Chinatowns in America, in New York, like in one in Queens, one in, in Canal Street, in one city. How incredible is that? You know, and that got me access to things that I was, you know, calamansi, lemongrass, galanga, all these ingredients that the Midtown chefs wasn't really up to. This gave me a sincere advantage, I felt. It was stuff like that. I felt that the city constantly pushed and pulled me in a way that I needed to be jerked at that time. And you continued to explore. You really never stopped. And then when I think today even, like, what kind of chef are you? I don't think you can really put a finger on it. You could do Swedish. You were Aquavit. You won, you know, awards for doing that. You studied in Europe, so you know that whole fine dining experience. You have your Red Rooster, but then you also have Street Bird Rotisserie, which is different. And you love street food. You take something from everything, right? So how would you describe your cuisine then? Well, I would describe it as I'm, I'm deeply in love with food, right? I love food. And when I look at people like David Bowie or, or Prince, you know, like if you think about from Siggy Stardust to Tin Machine to Let's Dance to finishing with a jazz album, right? I mean, come on. Like, like, what type of musician was David Bowie? Like, it's the people I admire that you can't, you know, Prince Journey, between 85 and 87, he worked on five albums and two movies, right? What type of, what type of music, like, what type of movie, you know, between Sign of the Time to Around the World in a Day, you know, if you go backwards and forwards and, and to a French movie, basically, right, Under the Cherry Moon. I look at people like that, that I truly, truly admire. And I'm curious to putting the records on. Not, I don't want to know what's going to come out of that album. I know that they were deeply engaged in music and I'm deeply engaged in food. If it's not experiential, I'm actually not that interested of doing it. I'm not. Like, it has to be an experience. And that was what Red Rooster 
is for me it's a love letter just to the city but it has to be experiential i remember one of the very first parties we did with before we opened we did kim's almost 60th birthday party right and she brought david byrne for example and i was just watching david the whole time because i'm like for that it's like an icon to me like like a creative genius and a gift to the city i'm like if david is smiling i know we're onto something <laughs> do you know what i mean and at that point we didn't even have gas we had to cook out of the basement that smelled that nice new york piss you know we're right next to the subway and for all the creative people in the room that wasn't an obstacle to them because most of them were around when new york city smelled like piss everywhere <laughs> and they knew they were on another journey that was different that was two weeks before we opened the restaurant it's one of my favorite events we ever did and the pink martinis performed and all of that stuff right it set the tonality that created this is a place for creatives all creatives and you also had a music venue downstairs. Mm-hmm. Music has been a very important part of your life as well as cooking. Obviously, it sounds like yeah. you, you listen to a lot of music. You have to. I mean, breaking bread is one way, but you know, sometimes music can be the first step of understanding another culture, right? And we are so in thirst for that right now. You know, I wish everybody in Congress got a little Felakuti in them and then, you know, a little Bowie in them, a little Prince in them. <sighs> they need it. You know what I mean? Well, for real, I think, you know, appreciation of other cultures, musics is certainly lacking in a, in a large swath of our country, not to mention even our, you know, favored representatives are often very, you know, weak in that department. They really haven't spent very much time understanding or connecting with other cultures, which, you know, could be like a good message for the future is one way to help uh, like the recovery. Absolutely. Anytime I change my opinion, I probably did it with music first or food first. You know, like when I was in Asia, like street markets there, they smell a certain way. And if it doesn't smell that way, I'm not going. You know, I don't trust it. <laughs> or and second thing, you, there's a sound by eating outside that, you know, you're going to hear the mopeds and motorbikes have a certain sound. And if I don't hear that stuff, I'm not liking the fish. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> urbanism and cu- that culture for me, it either speaks to you or doesn't. And it's so much of what I'm passionate about is people, but it's also the beautiful thing in life that, is about discovery, is about being curious, is about learning from other people things that I didn't know. And I don't fully understand why people are so afraid of learning the unknown. One of your shows, No Passport Required, does just that, right? It goes around the world, meets the people, goes and talks to them and and tries to understand the culture through the food. Yeah. It's hard to do a traveling show now during this time, but... It's such a blessing to be able to connect people again and telling the stories of the unknown very often, you know, like, did you know that it was a huge Filipino community in, in Seattle or what about the Armenian community in Los Angeles? There's something beautiful in telling the story of the underdog, right? And seeing that there's so much culture and history through that. And that's where America is the most beautiful. When you go to East LA and you find a Armenian shop that has been there for 60, 70 years. And 
they basically haven't changed their shark culture or their the way they preserve things for 500 years. And you can discover this in East LA. I'm like, or in East Hollywood. That's why I love America. It's a perfect show for you. Let's just talk about food, TV food shows for a minute, because, you know, you've been on many of them on both sides, like cooking and judging. And what is, uh, you know, the fascination, do you think, for the, of the public for these shows? Most people are not going to try to make most of those dishes, right? No, I, I think in many ways, you know, food has kind of entered where M- MTV was maybe in the late 80s, early 90s, where in the beginning, you have to be a music head to watch it. And then in the later, later part, it was just part of pop culture. And Food Network, in many ways, is, is it's sort of mirroring what MTV has done, right? Like you, you don't have, the first people that were watching it was probably really food, like chefs and people who were really into it. Other people, it, it's, hey, I aspire to, or it's back, it's, it's background noise, or it's like, oh, as a family, we can actually watch this and do this. We chopped, which we've been doing for 11 years now. The amount of families that are engaging in Chopped and, and doing it at home, and there's not a lot of shows that a whole, from an eight-year-old to whatever age, can everybody to grandparents can be all in. So I think it, it covers that family setting that we can all do it as a family. And I think that food is also something that everyone sees themselves in, whether it's they have an opinion, whether I don't like it or I do like it. And anytime you can have an opinion, the immediate reaction people want in. Yeah, it's it's kind of universal, right? Because everybody feels they're educated enough to have an opinion. Yeah. It's not as if you had, you know, we've all been eating all our lives, so we're super experienced yeah. at, at eating. We have different tastes. One person would love something. Another person might not like it at all, but uh, no one's right or wrong, right? It's just uh, sort of a matter of taste in many instances. Yes. So it's, it's a very universal uh, thing, obviously, but it still has a, a, a sort of distinct space on a TV world. Is there a show that you would like to do now, do you think? Well, I'm thinking about it. Uh, obviously, doing something about this social justice movement that is happening right now around Black Lives Matter and food is something that I want to do. Maybe it's something around my book, The Rise, where we highlight African-American black chefs. I love on Netflix the show about the history of hip hop, where you learn from all the way from the Bronx to essentially trap and everything in between. But hearing those early stories, I know the history, but I, I want to go back and look at it to listen to it again. It's something like around that, showing that we're not monolithic, showing that People are hurting out there, but through food and breaking bread, I think we can get back in it. Do you think there's been any change since you first started working with regard to black chefs or African-American working in, in the industry? Absolutely. I think there is, is progress, but we have ways to go, right? And I think on all aspects of it, that the fact that we as a nation, we know more about French cuisine or Japanese cuisine than we do about black food in our country, which is America's food, right? That's on the consumer and the, and the guest side. But then also on acknowledgement, right? Like Thomas Jefferson's chefs were black. And of course, they were slaves, but enslaved, but 
the, the executive chefs at the time was two young women. One was 15, one was 19, and they were executive chefs. And say it's not just cooking, you know, the person that came up with a recipe for Jack Daniels, Ernest Green, was black. He didn't get a dime. So just think about historically what the difference would have been if he would have get, gotten 50 cents on every bottle sold, right? The aspiration, the acknowledgement, the money, not just the money, the institutions that could have been built around that. Owning land, cooking, working with food, it has real consequences if you don't acknowledge and do what's right. So we've come far, but we have to do much, much more. In, in your book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food, that's not out yet, right? October 27th, yeah, coming out in okay. October. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Because as you were speaking, I was thinking that what you were saying is actually, you know, so true about so much of American culture, right? You know, the black culture is American culture in so many ways. I recently had, uh, you know, Lisa Cortez talking about women in hip hop and to the extent that fashion has been a component of black life. Yeah. You know, as far as you look, but it has never really been acknowledged. Certainly, you know, pop music today, you know, wouldn't exist if it wasn't uh, part of uh, black culture, food, as you say. And, you know, we could probably continue the list, but in many cases, we don't know. You have to dig up this information, like you were just saying about these, you know, amazing stories about uh, Jack Daniels, for example. I just had no idea about any of that. So now it's the time to acknowledge a lot of the work that has been going on and people who haven't gotten the credit. But a lot of the commentary today revolves around ownership as well. You know, that that's how people do wind up getting the credit for doing what they're doing. You know, like in the music world, you had all these great artists creating, but who was running the record companies? Well, I mean, you know, restaurant, it's a very expensive endeavor in many ways, right? But the great thing today, David, is that to be a black chef, you don't have to own a restaurant. You can be a caterer. You can do it. People find you through Instagram. So there is a liberation with social media that fits black entrepreneurship in a, in a positive way. As an immigrant, I had an easier chance to get access to a black bank loan than as a black person being from this country. How ownership changes is obviously there's a structure to that and there's an institution to that. And when black people didn't have access to any institutional money, it changes stuff. In the book, The Rise, we talk about the past, but we also talk about the present and future because we can do a lot of different things. One thing that was very important for me that we focus on about 40 people, but we're mentioning and putting their Instagram handles in for over 150 people in the book. Because I want companies, people to know if I live in Cincinnati and don't know where there would be an African-American restaurant in my area, you're going to be able to find someone through the book. So it can also work as truly a tool of find a chef locally, but also as a traveling tool. Like, hey, if I'm traveling with my friends and I'm going to Chicago, I want to visit this chef, you know? In your book, Dookie Chase is one of the people that uh, you talk to, right? And from New Orleans, where actually I lived there for a period of in the 70s and discovered it was all black cooking, right? Everything. There was basically nothing else. New Orleans, I mean, it's an iconic city. And why do we love it? We love it for the culture of the music and we love it for the culture of food right? and the great people. 
we think about the origin of jazz, but we also think about the origin of Creole cooking and so on. That city is so magical. And if you were to take black culture out of that city, it's not that magical anymore, right? So as Americans, we have to learn to live with each other and we have to acknowledge each other. And food and music for me is forever linked. It's two of the best ways to get to know people, you know, and um, clearly Republicans need to eat more food, you know what I mean? More cell food, yeah. Let's yeah. sneak it into their water somehow, yeah. you know, like put it in. I wanted to also ask about cooking with cannabis. Yeah. <laughs> Has you experimented with that at all? Yeah, I have. And I think that, you know, for me, it's more about, it's, it's sticky. So I want it to be delicious first, right? And it's it's hard to get delicious from it unless you completely cover it with a lot of sugar or a lot of chocolate or something like that. And that's not the point, right? So I think that, you know, it's fun to see that edibles are now becoming much, much, much more popular. But I think it went through this period of, oh, look what I'm doing. I'm cooking with cannabis. All right. That's kind of like, hi, I'm cool type of period. Now it's actually going through that second phase of can it be healing? Can it be helpful? And then the third phase of that, I think, be, but it's also delicious. And again, I don't mean delicious in the sense of overloading with sugar and other things to hide the flavor, but actually, how do you cook and enhance the flavor? The way, let's say, alcohol is a flavor enhancer, right? We, you put rum into a rum cake and it tastes delicious. You know, you're not trying to hide the rum from that, you know? So it, for me, we're not there yet with that. We're definitely there with the step one and two, but we're not there with when you go to the supermarket and I'm, I'm buying that X, Y, and Z because of so-and-so, right? So we, we have a little bit we have ways to go. Probably have to learn from Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're probably going to get some calls or letters from uh, people who are going to want you to sample some of their... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Their wares, just so, you know, <laughs> see if you're right or wrong about that. I noticed with regard to Street Bird, you've started a delivery service. Like, yeah. I was wondering about that, you know, the whole way people are adjusting to life today and, and eating at home more and wanting better food, but delivered. Is Was that the response to the situation or just a bigger plan altogether? First of all, People say, when are we going to get back to normal? David, people's habits are already changed. I don't know what that looks like. That new, I think the fact that people order in more is not going to go away. The fact that you send a, a gift of, of great food now to someone is here to stay. As a chef, as an entrepreneur, it's always important to figure out, okay, that's just noise, but that's here to stay, right? We're street bird. It's always the, the restaurant that I travel with, call it party in a box, we do pop-ups all over the world because it links hip-hop and, and great music and great food together. You look at traditional retail restaurant one way and I looked at street bird as a brand in a different way. It, it made perfect sense. Actually, I remember one of the first street birds events we did was actually at the paper office. We came right. a surprise to you guys. It was fun. It, I just it was one of the very first street bird experience we did. Yeah. One of my favorite things I know we get off topic was always coming off that elevator, I think it was on the 11th floor, and then going straight to the covers and 
you know, the covers for me, they're like an art I- installation. The covers that you guys shot, you know, they're, they're really an exhibit by itself. And it's a love letter to New York City, to downtown New York. Yeah, that was sweet. Uh, that office no longer is there, so yeah, uh, you won't be able to see that anymore, but I'm glad you have a, a good memory of it. Oh, the best memories. The dictatorship in the kitchen uh, is something I'm curious about. Obviously, it's needed. It's a dangerous place. People have knives. They have all these machines that, as you t- talked about, you know, there are accidents there. People can get seriously hurt. But at the same time, it's a fairly antiquated, and it, and in these days of you know, social justice and people just being a lot more sensitive about the bosses being the way they are, or what do they call it, a bad workplace environment and things of that nature. How do you feel about that? Do you think that's uh, something that needs to be preserved? I think that that model of operating, it's just outdated, right? I think you grew up in an era and that's your era, good or bad. And then you have to evolve from there. I worked in a kitchen in Switzerland where, you know, we were kids, the average kids in there, we were from 18 to 22. We needed a very structured environment. We were people from various countries, various languages, so it needed to be super strict. Those kitchens for me, I actually didn't took it at racism. Those guys yelled at everybody all the time, (laughs) as a matter of fact, right? But I do think that Today, you can't operate that way. It, it gave me, coming up as a kid that could have gone either way, it gave me the structure that I needed, but I do acknowledge that it's not an environment that I want to provide in my kitchen today. You know, there was not a lot, of, a lot of women. There was definitely no people of color. And you weren't nurtured. I threw up every day. Not because I didn't eat. It was because... I was stressed out and no 19 year old kid. I used to measure on the clock. I was able to throw up, go to the bathroom, run to the bathroom, throw up, clean myself up, run back and come back within seven minutes. Right. There's, you realize today that that, that shouldn't go on. And I had nobody, you have nobody to talk to you. Like you get thrown into the holes and we got to talk to you. So there was a lot of things that wouldn't have lasted today. And that's a good thing. I'm very appreciative of how I came up. I got nurtured in those kitchens. It was harsh. It was hard. It was difficult. And I traded that for skills and know-how. And I worked with some masters that no longer are around or, or, or wouldn't be able to work today. When I take their horrible habits away and I just look at the pure, incredible magician craftspeople that they were, they were amazing. I'm happy that we evolved and I want to, you know, when I looked at Red Rooster, I want to do the opposite, right? I want to have an open kitchen. I want to be very transparent who works here. I want to motivate through positivity, not through negativity and, and fear, you know, but I wouldn't have landed in that space or place unless I would have gone through that journey. Yeah, because it was, you know, good for you. I remember you telling everybody, you know, just keep quiet, keep your head down. They'll record, you know, this is what you have to do, the only way to survive. And, and sort of believing in the system that at the end, you know, like good works will will prevail and, and, and you will be recognized for your, for your work. But so how does it work today, in, uh, you know, with regard to that? Do you, do you still have the Yes Chef? That's still real. I think the Yes Chef 
works in the line of service, but you know, there was no pillows. There was no pillows of comfort, right? I remember one kid, he cut his finger off on the machine. Kids didn't know the way out, right? So he said, okay, he did the math. I'm going to cut one finger off. It's going to bleed. It's going to hurt, but it's worth it. Do you know what I mean? No. <laughs> one guy tried to put his hand through the meat grinder. Like, this is panic attack. Like, like it, it was so brutal. We can't manage that way. You just can't. I think today is much better. I just feel like I want young students today to just get the skills and have the patience to get the skills to become that crafty chef because it takes time to, there's so much to know and you can't do that quickly. Everything can be experienced online because you need repetition. One of those reasons why those bastards were so good because they repeated it many, 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 many times. So sometimes I feel like for young chefs today, it might, they might shoot too fast and the beauty is actually in the repetition. And there's also so many secrets, it seems like, even in, in your book where you talk about, you know, meat coming out of the freezer and why it has to be kept cold so it doesn't get too soft. You know, there, it's, a, it's kind of a chemistry process as well. So that's the kind of stuff you can't really learn other than being in the kitchen and, and doing it. Take the abuse away. The, the structure of what, what was taught was fantastic. For me, it was very important to take all the abuse away because that, that never encouraged anybody. They didn't want to make me stay. I, I would have respected or feared those chefs enough, even if they weren't abusive. Do you know what I mean? That was my point. Yeah. You guys are incredible. Therefore, you don't have to just scream constantly all the time. I'm like, trust your skill level and you'll be all right. You know what I mean? Right. Well, you're incredible too, Marcus, and I'm glad you didn't get injured too much along the way. And you made it here to New York, to Harlem, to so we could all enjoy not just your food, but your company, your presence, your vision, your positive action as, as um, a restaurateur, just as a citizen of the state, the country, and the world. Thank you very much for being on my show. Thank you, David. And I want to say thank you to you and what you and Kim created is an aspiration for so many of us. You always looked out for the odd man out. You, always, you guys were always curious for a different story. Nothing was ever weird or you were always willing to try out stuff. And I think holding that flag up is what a city like New York needs. So thank you for all the um, contribution that you guys have done to the city. All right? All right, man. Thanks, Marcus. Hope to see you soon. Thanks. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.